This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. December 3rd is the International Day for Persons with Disabilities. December 10th is the 75th anniversary of the passage of the UN, United, United Nations, you can say this, Dave, you can do it, United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. How does Canada rate with respect to the quality of life for people with disabilities and protecting human rights in general? This is a question that Rabia Khadar has been considering. Rabia is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty. Rabia, thank you so much for making time to be with the show again today. Thanks for having me again, Dave. Rabia, we'll sort of jump into some individual strands and strains in a second here. But overall, how would you rate the quality of life for people with disabilities in Canada in 2023? Well, Dave, we've come a long way since our, you know, times when we had our eugenic strategy and strategy of sterilization and we locked people away. We've come a long, long way today. As you mentioned, we're marking the 75th anniversary of the UN Declaration of Human Rights and, you know, it's uh, International Day of People with Disabilities coming up. We've made some significant legislative strides, including the Accessible Canada Act in 2019. And this year, the, uh, the, the legislation, the act to uh, implement the Canada Disability Benefit. This mm. is huge. This can be systems change. However, the quality of life of people with disabilities isn't up to par as it is for able-bodied Canadians. Pre-pandemic, people with disabilities were struggling to get and keep jobs, to adequately access transportation, housing, income supports. During the pandemic, life got even worse for people with disabilities, and yet it still steadily keeps going down that slippery slope. Mm. Disabled people in this country are not enjoying the same quality of life, are not thriving like able-bodied Canadians. You know what I think about too, Rabia, is a lot of inconsistency in what the disability experience may be, whether that's province to province, city to city, coast to coast. There's a lot of inconsistency in maybe the experience someone's going to have. And there's also just the reality of different lived experiences depending on the disability and depending on someone's life situation. And that's where the Canada disability benefit to me strikes me as sort of one of those linchpins. You mentioned that, that that's one of the big developments going on right now. It's certainly taking its time, working its way through the halls of parliament right now and through what will be uh, a fairly complex regulatory phase. But what's your broader observation about the Canada Disability Benefit and what prospect that might hold, especially for Canadians with disabilities who are living in poverty? Or I would even extend that out to working class Canadians with disabilities. Well, every person with a disability who's not earning enough to meet the poverty line to thrive uh, whether it's through income sources or earned income, they're just not getting enough to get by, this top-up benefit will indeed change 
their lived experience because it will give them enough money to meet at least some of their basic needs. Now, the problem in this right now, Dave, is that even when the finance minister was asked this question last week, she provided a standard answer of, you know, that that sort of fiscal restraint, fiscal conservativeness, dare I use the term, right? And and said that, you know, we can't do everything. We have to we have to be cautious of what we spend. Like that's the message she's sending. And people with disabilities just cannot hear that anymore because every time it comes to us asking for something, you know, it's it we're asking too much. Mm. And that's what people with disabilities are grasping with today. Like this money, this top-up benefit will change their lives. And yet the halls of power, bureaucracy, parliament are taking their sweet time at bringing the bill into force and creating the regulations to actually get the money to the people who need it most. Mm. You know, the bill hasn't even come into force. That's a technicality. It's an order in council that needs to happen. Governor in council, something or other, you know, some documents needs to be signed by somebody mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that the regulations process can move on to the next stage and, and we can have the, the benefit actually implemented. Yeah, Rabia, one of the encouraging things was at least the understanding of the problem. But now when you're talking about this timeline that for like, let's let's be optimistic. Let's be optimistic for the sake of being optimism on a Tuesday morning. Really, at best, you're talking about money hitting people's pockets, maybe in late 2024. For goodness sakes, I hope uh, something is put in place by the time an election happens in 2025. But I do think one of the big issues here is the stopgap in the middle, right? That if the problem's been identified, how long can you ask people living in poverty to wait for a top-up to, you know, afford rent, food, etc.? They just can't wait, Dave. That's the message we're trying to send, is they yeah. just cannot wait. Like, right now, because the bill has, uh, the, the legislation hasn't come into force through this, um, through this technical process, what we're talking about is money not reaching people until maybe summer 2025 days. Yeah. So it keeps getting pushed out and out and out. I, I hate to be, you know, the rain on the parade. I don't want to be negative. I am the most positive person. You know, fine. Like, we can do this, but we can only do this if every one of us shouts out loud, it's time to end disability poverty, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. we really need to be heard by the system and by the prime minister. You know, PM Trudeau made a promise three years ago. He needs to keep it mm -hmm. before there's an election. And, and that's the big thing, and that's the elephant that hangs over all of it. But like I said, let, let's not dwell too much in the pessimism, but you're absolutely right to address the reality of the situation. And I'm right there on board with you about the reality of the situation, because there are still some hurdles to go through to uh, to get this passed. Rubia, let's continue the continuity of the economic side of the equation. You and I spoke last time about entrepreneurship and the value, or the value or the possibility of that being a piece of the disability employment puzzle. Well, this is something that you find yourself talking about a lot. And last week, you had a chance to talk to CEOs of a couple prominent Canadian companies about the possibilities and prospects of more jobs for people with disabilities. What came out of those conversations? What was your takeaway from some of those meetings? Well, you know, I, I attended a symposium last week held by 
a major Canadian corporation uh, looking at, you know, just I issues around food and food security. And what I was really, really pleased to hear was its president and CEO talking about this concept of, you know, capitalism 2.0. Like, you know, we have gone to this extreme mode of capitalism where we're leaving a lot of people behind and we recognize that. And corporate Canada has to take responsibility to support community need to help communities thrive and just you know kind of kind of come to this place where we also invest in social good to to lift people out of precarious situations by ensuring that they have access to food that's healthy and affordable and and accessible and have access to you know affordable housing and accessible housing and have access to like you know quality transportation like we need to help people thrive mm. and thrive doesn't mean like they live the life of luxury thrive means that they have the basics they need for their well-being Robbie, switching to another topic that's an important one, and unfortunately it pops up over and over and over again, and that's accommodation and accessibility issues while traveling. Uh, just yep. a couple notable ones here in the last few weeks. There was a gentleman from British Columbia who uses a wheelchair who had to drag himself off a plane because there was no wheelchair assistance for him on the ground in Las Vegas. That was an Air Canada issue. Air Canada has acknowledged the problem, but but uh, sometimes acknowledging the problem is not enough. There was also a situation of uh, damaged or lost uh, accessibility and mobility aids. It happened to the uh, Chief Accessibility Officer of Canada on a flight, which I think is kind of jarring and kind of shows you how pressing the issue is. Where do you think the issue of accommodation, accessibility, and inclusion in the travel space is stacking up in the broader human rights and disability conversation in the country? Again, you know, our, our like, oh, I hate to use this term, Dave, but this is all I can think of. We're just cheap. Yeah. <laughs> We're just yeah. cheap. Our, our travel um, services have really taken aback when it comes to, you know, air travel, um, right down to, you know, no meals and snacks. Like, we're just bloody cheap. And that impact is being felt when it comes to accessibility that you know we're negligent um where there's no continuity of of training i believe in order to educate people on how essential assistive devices are for disabled people we constantly hear horror and horror stories of wheelchairs being damaged lost left behind and yes this to happen to to stephanie Cadu, our chief accessibility officer is really really ironic but at least she has, you know, that that image, that profile in, in the system, in government, in the country, uh, that, you know, her, this happening to her has to be flagged and taken more seriously and, and raises the issue to a level where there will be results. Mm. I, I think what I found most jarring about the Las Vegas story of the gentleman who had to pull himself off the plane, beyond just how demeaning it is, like beyond how terrible it is, mm -hmm. it's the idea that the airline said, oh, well, we hire a third-party service at the Las Vegas airport to do that for us, and nobody was available. And that really struck me as sort of the shirking of responsibility of saying, 
you are a major airline that reported a billion dollars in profits last quarter. You need to have people on the ground. And and to an even broader degree, and I want to be careful here because flight attendants have yeah, one of yeah. the hardest jobs on the planet, but I think there has to be some kind of training done for, for flight attendants in that scenario, in that situation, to at least be able to step in and offer some kind of stopgap or sensitivity. I absolutely hear you. Uh, uh, where's our humanity would be my question, right? Mm. Like, as a human being, how can I stand there and watch somebody crawl off an airplane? I'm telling you, as a blind woman, I would have said, here, let me help you. Try to, you know, let's let's lift you up. Let's do something. We're going to get you off of here with some accessibility and dignity. Like, honestly, my heart breaks for that person that had to endure that kind of dehumanizing experience. Yeah, that's the exact word, dehumanizing, like completely dehumanization of a person with a disability. Okay, Rabia, let's zoom out here on a, on a concluding thought. If there are obviously a bunch of different issues that impact the disability community broadly across the country, if you had to prioritize just one, I know it's really hard to do, but if you had to prioritize just one, what would it be? I can't see disabled people on the streets asking for money. I can't see them, like, like, and this, I'm blind, okay? I can't hear about them being on the street, Dave. I just... I just can't live with myself when I have food and shelter and family and community and, and, and a job. I, I just can't, you know, I, I can't sleep at night yeah. knowing that, that, you know, my brothers and sisters with disabilities are on the streets, don't have food, are going hungry, are cold, you know, are, are enduring these conditions that I don't expect to happen in my Canada. So we need to change something, Dave. We each one of us needs to change something. We need to raise our voices, our hands, our you know whatever we can lift or or or, or you know enunciate or whatever kind of noise we can make. We need to get people in power to recognize that this ain't good enough in our society. People with disabilities have the right to live with dignity. That's what matters to me most. I think that's so well said. If I was to put a very fine point on it, Rabia, and I think anyone who watches or listens to the show every day would uh, be unsurprised by my answer, housing. Housing, 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 housing. Whether that's cities, provinces, the federal government, the private sector, whomever it may be, one of the key pivot points on all of this is housing. And I don't mean building a couple houses. I mean building like millions of houses. And that to me is sort of where the ball starts rolling. And then of course the, the, the other uh, subtext of that is accessible, affordable housing, not just affordable housing. But I, uh, I, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to corner you on that one, but I bet you that'll come up between you and me over the course of the next uh, couple of conversations here over the next few months. Oh, I completely agree with you, Dave. I agree on housing. And, and if you're talking millions of homes, if we build millions of homes, they'll become affordable anyway. Yes, yes. It's all supply and demand, my friend. Ah, uh, Rabia, it's nice to end this conversation on the same page. Have a lovely day. Thank you for this. Talk to you again in a few weeks. Thank you.
That's Rabia Khadr. Rabia is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty in Mississauga, Ontario. In one minute, Laura Bain has the entertainment report. But first, Microsoft is showing off some new adaptive tech. Brian Clark has more in Tech Trends. I was born without fingers on my left hand. And that has caused me to use my right hand for double duty my entire life. And it's wearing out. Solomon Romney's part of the inclusive tech lab at Microsoft and helped create some new technology that could help. It's called the adaptive touch mode for touch pads. Essentially takes a large imprecise input, so non-finger input, aggregates the data in a way that it tracks a center of mass of whatever's contacting, and that allows you to navigate the touchpad without the precision of a fingertip. Opening up all sorts of options for something most of us take for granted. With this, I can mouse with the edge of my hand, with the ball of my thumb, with my wrist. The new technology first arriving in Microsoft Surface Laptop Studio 2. With Tech Trends, I'm Brian Clark, ABC News. Thank you very much, Brian. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. Laura Bain, you've got some news from the TV and streaming world, some hardware being handed out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So last night was the 2023 International Emmy Awards, highlighting the best in global television. So that took place in New York City. No surprise, Netflix and Amazon series dominated the nomination and awards, just kind of the changing nature of the types of things that we're watching. Mm -hmm. So the best drama went to Netflix's German language series, The Empress. Have to confess, I haven't checked that one out. And uh, Amazon's Lakeda, which I hope I'm saying that correctly, went to uh, won the best miniseries award. Wow, um, so Netflix really has done a great job in investing in international series. If you think about like Squid yeah. Game, for example, out of a Korea a couple of years ago, there's a couple of German shows that I love on Netflix, uh, Barbarian, as well as How to Sell Drugs Online Fast. Like Netflix has done a really great job investing in their European and international developments. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm a fan of Netflix series because they tend to have uh, descriptive video or descriptive audio, which I, I always have while mm -hmm. I'm watching something. Mm -hmm. so, um, on that theme, uh, British sitcom Dairy Girls, that one for best comedy. I know that's got a lot of Canadian fans. And I'll mention that Martin Freeman won for best actor for his role in The Responder. Also have not seen that show, but I wanted to highlight him because uh, some folks like me will know him as Bilbo Baggins from The Hobbit. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, last award that I'll mention, Buffy St. Marie Carry It On won for best arts programming. So that's an in-depth look at the singer's life and career. That one was a bit controversial because there were some calls for that nomination to be rescinded due to the recent controversy around her Indigenous ancestry claims, but it did go ahead and the documentary won in that category. So Dave, this was, as I mentioned, the International Emmys, but I'm going to open it up. It can be American, <laughs> Canadian, International. What was your favourite TV show that you checked out this year. Thank you for uh, not forcing me into the international conversation, although I'm glad I was able to shout out a couple of those old series, but I don't think either of them have dropped a uh, new season this year, so it wouldn't apply to your question. So thank you for allowing me to go domestic. I am staying with Netflix on this one, though. Uh, the new season of Human Resources dropped this summer. That's a, that's an animated show. It's a spinoff of the show Big Mouth that sort of explores mm -hmm. sexuality and, um, and maturity and puberty and 
uh, through like a very adult lens. And I just think Human Resources is a very clever, clever show. It's crass and it's crude, but it also has a heart to it that I do believe is cored a little bit in inclusive notions and inclusive ideas. I just think it's really funny and it's really sweet and it's really weird. It's basically my favorite kind of television show. What about you, Laura? Yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to have to add that one to my list. Well, I hadn't planned on my picks being international, but they are. I was thinking back, well, what did I watch this year? So I'm going to mention two shows really quickly. The fourth and final season of the British dramedy Sex Education. Oh, people love that show. Yeah. That was great. And this season in particular delved a lot into accessibility and issues experienced by students with disabilities. It was, it was fantastic. Um, and I also binged watched the first two seasons of the British teen dramedy. There's a theme there, uh, <laughs> Heartstopper. Um, so that both of those shows are available on Netflix for streaming. Heartstopper uh, kind of delves into issues of queerness and gender identity. And uh, there is a third season coming, but I just, it kind of gave me all the feels. So those oh. would be my, my picks. Neither of them... Uh, from what I could tell, nominated for the international Emmys, but uh, winners in my in my heart. <laughs> That's okay. They, they win the Bainies. They win the Bainies yeah. here on uh, November the 21st. Hey, Laura, thank you for this. Thank you for running down a couple of these awards, and thank you for a little bit of curation and suggestion. Have a lovely day. Talk to you tomorrow. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. British Columbia and the city of Surrey continue to grapple over who should run the local police force. I'll have that story in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Don't forget, you have to spell plus P-L-U-S. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.